will be in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 tonight, so you can go ahead and find that. It's the first chapter of the New Testament. And while you guys find Matthew 1 and 2, I just want to say that I consider it a privilege to deliver a message like this. And I hope that for you it would be considered a pleasure to receive it. So that's what we hope. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the Matthew, Matthew's Christmas narrative. It's two chapters. And then we will go into looking at it. So Matthew 1 verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Now, you guys get the point, right? It's a genealogy. So there's a bunch of more names, and we will jump to verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which, Matthew helps us here, means God with us. Now when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary, his wife, and knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of the wretched Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem troubled with him. 
and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet Micah 5 verse 2, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then, verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their, to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother and departed by night to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Hosea 11 verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then, 16, Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed, not just Jesus, just killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who are two years old or under according to the time that he ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah 31 verse 15. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because They are no more. Let us pray. Father, we come this evening to your passage humbly. We want to see, Father. We want to see Christmas. I pray then, to that end, that you would open our eyes. That we would be able to see with the eyes of the wise men the marvel that caused such a travel from the east to Jerusalem. So Father, I pray that you make plain in your word that we all have a home in your Son because of Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, When it comes to Christmas songs, we like an awful lot of them. And I don't know about you, but it's kind of hard to narrow down that 
favorite song, whether it be the modern secular ones or the old traditional ones, there's a lot of good ones out there. But I can tell you that one, we'll just say it's one of the top three. One of my favorites is the traditional one called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it goes like this, at least the first verse. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom, set free, captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here, until the Son of God appear. And it struck me this year, how many times I liked that song merely because it had this kind of minor key to it, this like dark, this like something's wrong, and then all of a sudden, rejoice, and it's happy and fun. And apart from the musical element, this year I I began to think about, what the heck am I singing? And so I started to think about it. Come, come, Emmanuel, it's God with us. Ransom captive Israel. And we know the images of sin becoming this master that holds humanity in slavery. And ransom, freedom, come and do it. And we, we get the part until the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, comes and appears. We get that part. But what about that line in the middle? The part that says Israel mourns in lonely exile until the Son of God appear. Exile? Did not the exile, if you know your Bible, happen some 500 years before Jesus appeared? Were not the Jews sitting in Jerusalem as we look at this Christmas passage? Were they not back in the land? What kind of a songwriter, how did he get away with this? How did the church ever let this be sung? Exile? Christmas? What does exile have to do with Christmas? I hope to answer that tonight. Now, a quick word about Matthew's gospel so that we can set the stage. Is that Matthew's gospel... He's portraying Jesus as bringing Israel's story to its completion. Okay, there's a story. It begins in Genesis. You read of it in the Old Testament. And the story was going really well until this event called the exile happened. Boom. Assyria and Babylon came and took the Israelites out of their land and pushed them elsewhere. That's exile, being dislocated from your home. And when that moment happened, some 500 years before Jesus and plus, the story of Israel to be this light to the world came to a dead stop. The king was no longer on the throne. The promises seemed over. The covenant seemed broken. Yahweh left the temple. The temple was destroyed. What was going on? The story had come to a complete dead end. And Matthew writes to say that Jesus comes and goes back to where the story got cut off, takes the history of Israel upon himself, and begins to live the story out to where Israel couldn't get it. He begins to take it to its completion. 
So that's what Matthew wants us to see, is that exile ended the story, Jesus comes, picks up the story, and pushes it forward. I'll show that to you in a minute. But this is what I want to propose tonight. Is that the end of Israel's exile began not when we see Nehemiah and the people coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, but that the end of Israel's exile began when Jesus was born. And I don't come to this proposition on my own. This is my proposition because I believe this is Matthew's proposition. In other words, I'm not bringing a message out of the Christmas song. I'm bringing a message out of the Bible that I hope is supporting the Christmas song. So that we see that this Latin song translated by some guy named Mean in 1851 isn't just off tune, out of pitch, and off key. But that it actually meant something when he penned Bring Israel out of lonely exile. They're mourning for exile to end. So that in the birth of Jesus, the exile was beginning to come to an end. That is the main idea here. And I want to show this to you by, I know, the, the nativity is a cute scene. We've got a pregnant teenager. We've got a baby in a manger. We've got camels, shepherds, stinky sheep, three kings from the east, and a star that apparently is moving around, and they're coming from a long way, and this angry temperamental king killing everybody. The nativity scene is great. But tonight, we're going to go to the nativity, and we're going to push all of those things aside And look at what's happening behind the nativity. What often gets covered up with our cute cartoon of Christmas. So this is where we're going. We're going to do three steps here. First, I'm going to talk about the exile. Basically, real quick. Just, what is the exile? Why did it happen? All those questions that you might have in your mind right now. We'll talk about exile. Then step two, we're going to move into Jesus. And we're going to look at what Matthew is saying about Jesus. And as I'm proposing, Matthew is saying that Jesus came to end that exile. And then we will finish step three with what does this mean for us this Christmas tonight and this week? How does some story 2,000 years ago even mean something right now? So let's go forward. Let's explain the exile. Now here's some of your questions, right? What is this exile you're talking about? Why did it even happen? Did God just spank his people and like whatever, forget about them? And then when was this thing supposed to end? How would they know when it was supposed to end? And those are our questions. So take them one in turn. Um, First, what was the exile? The exile, according to the biblical writers, was a condition of death. Israel started as a seed, a seed that was promised in Abraham. And that seed began to grow, and it grew, and it became a tree by the time David became king. And this kingdom, this little man Abraham, became this kingdom of Israel, and David was this great king leading it. The seed had become a tree. But then, this exile happens. These foreign enemies come in. They cut the tree down. The tree falls. The stump is left. And they're scattered into other nations. They're scattered around the world. And Isaiah describes it that the tree had become a stump. 
And Ezekiel describes it as this lively nation has become a graveyard of dried dead bones. It's Ezekiel 37. That's how they saw the exile. Our story is finished. The covenant is done. We're abandoned. We're dead. And why did it happen? No, God did not break the covenant. He kept his covenant in doing this. The best passage to explain why the exile happened, why they were dislodged from Jerusalem, is in 2 Kings 17. And 17.7 says this, The exile occurred because, this doesn't get clearer than this, the exile occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against Yahweh. Yahweh, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh the king, and had, they began to fear other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So basically, they began to sin against him because they began to worship other gods and imitate the nations he told them not to imitate. Short and simple, they were unfaithful to the covenant. They broke it, they rebelled, so they were exiled. This is just like Adam in Eden. Adam was given this land... And he rebelled against the kingship of God and was sent out. He was in exile. And, and Israel, in their rebelling against God, in their land, this, this lush, prosperous land flowing with milk and honey, in their rebellion against his kingship, were as well, like Adam, exiled, thrown out of the land. And so what we see in the exile is that Israel is joining the rest of humanity in this state of we're exiles. We don't have a home. We don't even know why we exist. And then third, when's the exile supposed to end? Well, the exile was still present at the time of Jesus. Now, I know because you're probably thinking, that's not what I've been told all my life. I thought it was over. I'm not changing what you've been told. I'm clarifying what you've been told, okay? So don't, don't throw up your, you know, oh, everything I know is wrong. <laughs> you don't have to go through that tonight. I just want to clarify. The exile ended physically underneath Ezra and Nehemiah and all those stories we see of them coming back, building the temple, building the city walls. Yes, physically, they had come back to Israel. They had come back to Jerusalem. But spiritually, things were not restored as they were. Prime example, there was no king on the throne. And the Gentiles were still ruling over Jerusalem. And most importantly, the presence of Yahweh had not returned to the temple. Now, this is what Ezekiel says when the exile happened. Ezekiel says in chapters 10 and 11, I'm going to read two verses to summarize what those chapters are saying. He says, The glory of Yahweh went out from the threshold of the temple, and the glory of Yahweh went up from under, I'm sorry, went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is east of the city. What Ezekiel is saying is he saw God's glory leave the temple and go over the Mount of Olives and disappear. And then, of course, the Babylonians come and deconstruct the temple. And death had happened. So, what does this mean? The exile was still present because Yahweh was not present. We don't read anywhere of the glory, the cloud, the, the Shekinah returning into the temple. Ever. But, 
there's hope because the prophets were all yearning for that return. They knew this wasn't the end. The prophets spoke up to tell Israel, yeah, you're going to exile, but guess what? The stump has a shoot. A new branch is going to grow off of this. It's not the final word. Yahweh will return to Israel. Three key passages. Isaiah 40 verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see together for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. And Isaiah, they're in exile. What's he saying? All flesh will see his glory once again. Isaiah 52 8. The voice of your watchmen. They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. There's going to be rejoicing because Israel is going to see his return again one day. And then Malachi 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, whom we, it looks like is John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So see, here we have three prophecies that are saying, yep, Ezekiel's right, Yahweh abandoned, he's gone, but he will return. Okay, so real quick, what's the exile? It's death. Why did it happen? Sin. When is it going to end? Whenever Yahweh returns. Now, step two, Jesus. And this is where we get to our proposition that what Matthew sees is that exile is coming to an end in the birth of Jesus. In the birth of this baby, the birth of this anointed one, this exile is coming to its completion. He shows us this in four ways, and I'm going to go through three of these will be very quick, I hope. But one of them, I'm going to warn you, is a bear. So, you know what you do when you see a bear, right? Well, they say you're supposed to play dead. Not, not that anyone would ever do that. But So when we get to this one and it, it just like escapes you, just play dead. Like nod and, mm-hmm, and we'll move on. But that's, that's going to be the second way Matthew shows that the exile is ending in Jesus. So we'll get there in just one minute. But Okay, so the four ways. Number one, the end of exile Matthew introduces in the genealogy. Yep, it's there for a reason. We didn't read all of it because it gets rather redundant, but I can show you what this genealogy says in one verse. It's in 1 verse 17. So all the generations from Adam to David were 14. And from David to the exile, it's a deportation of Babylon, 14. And from the exile to the Christ, 14. What what does that mean? What Matthew's doing with the genealogy is he's telling the story of Israel. Albeit he's not saying it the way you wish he would. He's saying it through names. (laughs) Through a genealogy. But that's where this verse 17 comes into handy. Because what Matthew tells us in verse 17 is, There are 48 names in this genealogy, but I have skillfully divided them into three parts of 14 names each. That's 48. 42. Whatever. (laughs) Leave it to the math teacher. 
And so there's the three sections of 14 names. And he did this. He didn't only arrange it in three sections, but he arranged the names so that the 14th name of each section would be the climax of that section. In short, what I'm saying is he wrote the story through the genealogies in three parts. And the key is in the 14th name. And that's what 1 verse 17 is. He's naming the 14th name of each part. He says, from Abraham to David. David's the 14th name. From David to exile. So the king he mentioned that was over the exile situation, that's a 14th name. And from the exile to Christ. Christ is a 14th name. So here's the story. David, exile, Jesus. Do you, are you smelling what Matthew's saying? He's saying Israel once had this great kingdom and the covenant was being fulfilled through them. David was the crown of that moment. But the story ended when exile happened. And we hung our harps, the psalm says, by the willow trees. We gave up on hope. Then Matthew adds part three and says, Ah, Jesus, the story is back. He's taking it on. So we have this hint This introduction to the idea of the end of exile in the genealogy. Yes, there's an exile, but there's Jesus. It's coming to its end. Part two is over. Number two, here's the bear. But if you put on your heads with me, you will like this very much. So second way Matthew shows the end of exile is here is by inferring it in the Old Testament citations. He's inferring it through these Old Testament passages. Now, there's four of them. As we read them, you notice 123, he's quoting Isaiah. Um, in 2.6, he's quoting Micah. In 2.15, he's quoting Hosea. And in 2.18, he's quoting Jeremiah. Four times. We're only going to cover three for the sake of time. I'm going to skip the Isaiah one because there's so much to say about that. That's its own message. So we're going to cover the three Old Testament references in chapter 2. Now... Before I proceed, I need to clarify something. Otherwise, these citations won't make sense. This is the first clarification. We must interpret the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. Now, we usually have a habit of doing this the other way. We read the Old Testament, and then we go to the New Testament and insert Jesus into the Old Testament. And we try to make sense of the Old Testament by looking to the New Testament. Right? We, we do that a lot. And that's not wrong. That's a good practice. That's very good. But we also need to be in the practice of reversing this. We need to read the New Testament and say, what's going on? And go to the Old Testament for answers. Because that's what the writers of the New Testament were doing. They're I mean, I don't know if this is going to blow you away, but there was no New Testament when the New Testament writers were writing the New Testament. (laughs) So, when Paul writes his lofty stuff and randomly throws in this quotation from the Old Testament, reader, take note. He's giving you the interpretation. When Matthew tells us the story of Jesus and he quotes Old Testament references, reader, take note. See, what the New Testament does is it explains what Jesus is and what his people are all about by using Old Testament language. So therefore, if we want to understand the New Testament properly, apart from our 21st century idealized concept of the Bible, we must go and understand the Old Testament. Because that's the language of the New. 
So that's the first. So what we have to do is we have to take these Old Testament passages seriously. I know if you're like me, I've had the habit for years of skipping over them. I don't get why he said that. This whole weeping, Rachel, for your children because Herod killed people? I don't get that. Who's Rachel? Where is she? She's not in this story. You just kind of skip over it and not even really think about what it means. Second clarification. We must read beyond the citation. So when Matthew gives you this one verse little quote from the Old Testament, read past it. But verse 7 has nothing to do with that. No, no, no. Go to Micah. Go to the passage he's citing. And read the story he's telling. For the sake of space, they didn't have word processors, cut, paste, this is what I mean. For the sake of space, they would quote the key verse of the story and then let the reader back then who was immersed in the Old Testament say, Ah, I know what he's talking about. I'm going to go back and look at that. Well, that's what he means. Move forward. To put it in our language, this is a lot like what it would be for them. Um, A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Okay, now you got the theme music playing. You're thinking of this heavy breathing black machine. And you're thinking of who's your my father conflicts and glowing flashlights hitting each other. I know. That's not what's in your mind. When I quote the first line of Star Wars, it instantly brings to our minds the entire story of Star Wars. I don't need to tell you everything. It's just there. It's inside us. I just say a long time ago and bam, we got it. That's the idea. They're quoting a verse and the people understand the story already. So when they see the verse, they're thinking about everything the Old Testament is saying in relation to that. So that's what we have to do. Is we have to read past the citation and go and immerse the story. So whew, that's what we're going to do. So quickly, the three citations in Matthew 2. The first one is in verse 6. And it's from Micah 5 verse 2. Now if you're quick with your thumbs, you can go to Micah 5 verse 2. If not, don't worry. I will explain this. So Micah 5, I'm going to start in chapter 4 because this is where the idea picks up. In Micah 4 verse 9, this is what we see. It's describing Israel's plunge into exile. It says, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, that's Israel, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. See what is happening in this story of Micah. There's this prophecy of doom and gloom. You're going to feel labor pains. You're going to uh, the Babylon. You're going into exile. Then it moves forward. Then you have Micah 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, you're not too little among the clans of Judah. For from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel. And then it continues with hope. Look at verse 3. Therefore, as a result of this ruler, therefore, he shall give them up. Until the time when she was in labor gives birth, then, when exiles over the saying, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. A ruler comes, the people return. Look at verse 5. He shall be their peace. Verse 4 also says that they're going to dwell securely. Then you get to verse 10. And it, I'm just going to summarize 10 to the end of the chapter, is talking about idolatry will cease to exist in Israel. Summary. 
You're going into exile. But a ruler's coming. Peace will be brought with him. You will return. And idolatry, your sin that cast you into exile, will be cut off. See what Matthew's doing? There's a larger picture here at work. Second citation, Hosea 11. Um, It's in Matthew 2, verse 15. Hosea 11, verse 1. I should have tapped these. I knew it. Okay, what Isaiah is briefly recounting is Israel's rebellion. Now, 11 verse 1 is the one we find in Matthew. He says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, now what's the rest of the story say? The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Idolatry. So the more I called, the more they went into idolatry. The more they resisted me. Verse 5. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Assyria is one that took the upper kingdoms and threw them out. So exile's coming as the warning. Then verse 8. Exile, let's imagine exile happened. Now verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like all these places? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I can't leave you in exile. So what does verse 11 say? They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Boom. End of exile. And then the third citation is in Matthew 2, verse 18. It's after Herod kills the babies. What Matthew does is he quotes Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And Jeremiah 31 is a great chapter worth reading on your own time. It's what we call the New Covenant. It's what Jesus inaugurated with communion and all other theological implications we can go into later. Um, In 31, you have this story. Okay. Exile's coming. But the bulk of the chapter says this is what it's going to look like when exile ends. So 31 verse 15 is the dark note of the whole chapter. And that's where we see it in Matthew. There's a voice in Rama crying, Rachel leaves her children. Who's Rachel? Rachel was, if you will, the matriarch of Israel, Jacob's wife, the 12 tribes. So she is weeping for, it's, it's a symbol of Israel weeping for Israel's children. And... Ramah is a city six miles north of Jerusalem, and when Babylon came to take the Jews out of Jerusalem, they would have gone through Ramah. And so the picture is there's this weeping because mothers are watching their boys go off into war and die. Their boys going off into exile. And so that's the disaster. That's why the weeping. Now Matthew's quoting this because at the end of this is hope. You look at verse 16, Jeremiah 31, 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears because there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Matthew is again saying through the Old Testament, exile is ending in this baby. So there you go. That's the bear. We're done. Third way that Matthew shows the exile's ending in Jesus is that he illustrates it in two narratives. These are what you're familiar with. The two narratives of Matthew. It's one in chapter 1 and one in chapter 2. 
It's the narrative of Joseph and Mary and their conflict with, she's pregnant, what I do? And then the conflict of the wise men and Herod. And then their approach to Jesus. So here's the two narratives. Now, there's so much to say about these narratives, but I'm not going to say it. There's a lot of historicity to affirm and to talk about. And like, how did it really look? And, you know, I've got some notes in the back with footnotes for some of this stuff you can go pick up. Um, the whole thing, like, what does it mean to be, tr- be betrothed? It's all there. But without getting into that, I'm going to concern mainly on the theological point of these passages. And that's this. So, after realizing that Mary is pregnant and that this wasn't Joseph's doing, he's in a conundrum. I didn't get her pregnant, so this is what I'm going to do. She's been unfaithful to me. I'm going to divorce her. We're going to separate. But before he separates from Mary, God appears through his angel and says, No, this is my doing. No separation. In fact, what is happening in her is going to end this whole idea of separation. Here's the picture. We have the picture of the exile between Mary and Joseph. There is this separation because of unfaithfulness that's about to happen. But God says, no, we're not replaying that story. Stay together. Restoration is happening in place of separation. The exile is over. Joseph, Mary, Mary. Because that is what Yahweh is doing in Christmas. Is He's calling his people back to himself. There is no more separation now. So that's narrative one. Narrative number two, the wise men. We see them, that they come, they follow the star, they see Herod, and then they finally get to Jesus and offer him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's verse 2, verse 11. Now, again, there's a lot of historical things to say about what is this star work, who are the wise men, or the magi, people call them different things, uh, where are they coming from, what are they doing here, what's the significance of these gifts, like all these questions, right? And I'm just going to talk about what's maybe the theological significance here. It's maybe this. Matthew has in mind Isaiah 60, the whole chapter. Isaiah 60 is a chapter in my Bible, it's titled, The Future Glory of Israel. In other words, this is what Israel is going to look like when exile ends. And this is, I'm going to read you a portion from Isaiah 60. And listen to the hints of a star and gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. That's maybe poetic language for the exile, death, darkness. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Not only does Isaiah 60 hint to some light happening and bringing people to Israel, but it also specifies gold and frankincense. Matthew may have that in mind, and what he is saying, if he does, is that Isaiah 60, in his larger context, is about exile ending. And as we're seeing the star and these gifts coming from the Gentiles, it looks like the exile is ending. Fourth and finally, how Matthew shows that the exile is ending in Jesus. Number four. The end of exile is indicated in the child's two names. 
child's two names. Now, to understand the significance of the two names, it's Jesus in 121 and Emmanuel in 123. To understand the significance of those, we have to recall what the exile was. What was it? It was a result of sin, and it was the absence of God's presence. So in order for exile to end, those two things must be dealt with. Sin and absence of God's presence. And in the names of Jesus and Emmanuel, that's exactly what's happening. So 121 says this. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Okay. Jesus, if you don't know, is the Greek version of the Hebrew Joshua. So a Jew is hearing the name Joshua. It means Yahweh is salvation. Now, what did Joshua do? Joshua went to war on behalf of Israel, led them into the promised land with the edge of his sword. Jesus is the new Joshua, and he is going to lead Israel into the land, out of exile, and back into the land. We typically call this land heaven, is what the New Testament has begun to term it. But into their new promised land, not with the edge of the sword, but with the sufferings of the cross. And Jesus isn't coming to beat up nations like Rome. He's coming to beat up the greater enemy. The enemy that Israel has been suffering in exile under. The enemy of sin. So again, it's not with the sword of war, but it's with the suffering of the cross that he's going to bring that to an end. And then the second name, Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? Verse 23 tells us, Matthew tells us, which means God with us. Hello. Ezekiel said... I saw God depart from us. Chapters 10 and 11. The prophets promised Isaiah 40, 52, and Malachi 3. But it's not the end. He's going to come back. And we're hoping for that day. And then this angel says, Hello, this baby is named Emmanuel. Let me translate, Joseph. Yahweh is returning to dwell among his people. Exile is ending. So, I hope that what you see then is that the end of exile is what Matthew's Christmas story is all about. Is that these severed people with no purpose, no future, no hope, no life, no freedom, no purpose, is now being brought back to what they were meant to be. They're once again the people of God, and we're all with, you know, this is a whole nother study, but how we connect with that, you know, we're all recipients of that. We all have images of the nativity, but behind all of that is something so much grander, so much bigger, something that is striking a note with the hearts of all of humankind, and it's not just peace on earth, wars will end. That's not the message of hope that we're hearing. The message of hope is that exiles in every corner of this earth are returning home in Jesus. So when Jesus came to move Israel's story forward, he came to move our story forward. The exile was not just about Israel. It was about humanity. And I mentioned that earlier, right? Adam was exiled. Israel joined the exile. 
Humanity is exiled. Look Look out of the church building. Look out of your homes and see if you don't see everywhere you look. Exiles everywhere. There are people wandering about with no true home. Oh, they have a house. They have a physical home. But they have no purpose. They have no reason for existence. They're not fulfilling what they were meant to fulfill. Their true home, they have no clue what that is. And they don't even know where they belong. Exiles everywhere. We once lived in Eden, and that's where our home is, and we're exiles. But, I'll be home for Christmas. A lot of people's favorite Christmas song is no longer just a song for soldiers off in war, but it's a song for exiles dislodged from Eden, too. That in Jesus, humanity may say, I will be home for Christmas. I am returning to my true Edenic home, which Revelation 21 and 22 promises we are going to. If you just read it and think Eden, you'll see it. The tree of life is there, the river, and all these things that were in Eden, like gold and bdellium and onyx, it's all there. We're going there. We have home. Exile is over in Jesus. Now, Jesus did his thing here, and he ascended into heaven at the right hand of God, on the throne, and in his temporary absence, until he comes back, we, we are Emmanuel. God has chosen to be present on this earth in and through his people. That's why he doesn't that's why he doesn't open up the clouds and say boo and make all the atheists believe is because he's chosen to be present in and through his people. We are Emmanuel and the way that we take on this commission is vitally important to the rest of the world because there are exiles everywhere and they will not be home for Christmas if the church doesn't open the doors and open the arms and say we are Emmanuel. Truly God is here in our midst. See, in the meantime, the world is creating their own Eden. They're trying to find their own significance and they're building gardens of gifts and paradises of possessions when the whole time Jesus is inviting them home out of exile, and how's he doing it? He began the end of exile through his birth, Matthew says, and he's continuing the end of exile through his people. And that is our commission and role here this Christmas and on this earth, is that we are bringing and showing the way home to exiles scattered in every corner of the earth without hope and purpose. So Jesus is inviting them through us. Will we show them the way? Or will we continue passively sitting in our own way? Lord, we pray that if there are any exiles here in this room tonight, that you would pick up their story 
and thrust it towards yourself. That we all as your people would truly say that we have one home and it's in your presence. It's with you. It's what we had lost when Adam rebelled. So Father, give us your heart to go into the world, open our arms, open our doors, and not discriminate, but to welcome all exiles into the home that you're calling them to. So Emmanuel, continue your work through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.